have their proper place in our lives, Lord. The good news of the God doesn't leave Christ has delivered us. He has come. He doesn't leave us where we are. doesn't leave us in the gutter. doesn't leave us to dwell and wallow in our failures. In ways that we have fallen, we give in to sin and temptation. But he rescues us. He delivers us. He washes us. He cleanses us. One thing that can never be forgotten, Lord, is that while we fail, Christ succeeds. And the believer is always mesmerized by the steadfastness of Christ. We see in our passage today that while yet Christ is beginning his trial, he's sensitive to Peter in his trial and sees Peter's failure. He succeeds on behalf of where we all fail so that we can be adopted, so that we can rest in the assurance and the salvation that you've given to us. And so help us, Lord, today to, to rejoice in what it is that Christ has done and to look to you, Father. It's been said for every one look at self, we need to take ten looks to Christ. And so I pray that we would do that and you would help us to do that today. And we ask these things, Lord, in your name. Amen. We're moving today in our passage in Luke from chapter 22, verses 47 through 53, where we were in the garden, to verses 54 through 62 this morning. We're moved from the garden to the courtyard, and while the emphasis is Luke, Luke's gospel begins to ramp up the events that pertain to our Lord Jesus' trial and his crucifixion ultimately. Um, we do take a moment this week where Luke puts a special emphasis on Peter's own trial and his, his falling and his failure, which Christ had told him was going to happen, and we see happen in our text today. Um, it's, it's preparing for sermons like this are difficult because um, you, you read the text and you study it, for the doctrine and the theology, and, that, and then the intent of that is always for it to work its way into the heart of the believer. It's not just like knowing the doctrine and the theology of the text, it's, it's being transformed by what you read and being a person who is, worships God. It's about being transformed, it's about being a worshiper of this, of this incredibly wonderful, triune, immutable, divine God as he presents himself to us in scripture, like perfect in every way. And when you prepare for a passage like this, that is squarely, primarily about Peter's failure, you begin to ruminate and reflect upon all the ways in which you failed and you've fallen in the past as well. And no one likes to go there. No one, and, and the good news is that that's not where Christ leaves us. Like I said, when we pray, like he delivers us out of that. Um, but there is a very humbling and very sobering aspect to reading a passage like this, preparing a sermon for my own heart, preaching to myself, preaching to you and asking the Lord to reveal to us and impress upon us 
what it is that he has for us in the text this morning. And, and so my prayer is that we, in some ways, I, we can all identify with the falling and the failure of Peter. And yet what that's supposed to do is force us to look to the, the strength and the success of Christ. Where Peter fails, Christ succeeds. And that's like the story of the believer's life. Like it's a life of, uh, of us beginning in failure, of us living lives of falling, and then always looking to Christ as the means of our, of our righteousness, as the means of our salvation, as the means of, of being able to rightly worship God. And so my prayer today is that that would be um, the case for all of us. You know, as we come to a passage like this, I, I ask myself the question, why do, why do these events, why are these events of Peter's denial of the Lord even recorded? It doesn't take away, it doesn't add to the gospel story. It doesn't take away from anything that Christ has done. If this part here is omitted and we go straight from the garden to his mockery and being handed over to be crucified and this part about Peter's denial of Jesus is omitted, it doesn't take away from anything of what it is that Christ has done. And so I ask myself, well, why are these events included? Because God in his Divine wisdom includes everything in Scripture that is in Scripture for a purpose. And so I ask myself, well, what's the purpose of this? And I think that there are several of them. One is that we get a good look at the nature of what is besets mankind. I mean, Peter, the Apostle Peter, I mean, one of the best of us, right? One of the best that mankind has to offer, at least recorded in Scripture, fails he falls and again that contrasts with the success where christ succeeds we are unable to meet the righteous requirements that god demands from us and he understands that we are fallen it was as tim read for us this morning in psalm 103 he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust and i'm so thankful he's mindful of my dustiness and it magnifies the strength and the success and the completeness of the work of Christ on my behalf. Luke, in his gospel, we've seen has emphasized in a special way the importance of the disciple, of faithfulness in the life of the disciple. And yet we see, again, we're reminded of a moment where Peter is faithless. And it reminds us again of the necessity of the faithfulness of Christ and how we benefit from his faithfulness. At the end of the day, the best among us cannot be faithful to the end. We cannot be perfectly faithful the way that God requires faithfulness, the way that even among us, among believers, like we so desire to be faithful, but we cannot. And again, it reminds us of the faithfulness of Christ. And it reminds me that the sin that lived in Peter lives in me. And if I ever come to a place where I would ever say in my life, there's no way I would ever do that thing, whatever that is, I'm kidding myself. Because the sin that is at work in everybody that brings about 
disobedience and sinfulness in any way, shape, or form, that potential resides within me. It resides within all of us. And it reminds me of the importance of humble and sober living before the Lord my God. As I completely trust like in the goodness and the work of Christ on my behalf. And so it's true what John Calvin said in his commentary regarding this passage. Peter's fall here is a bright mirror of our own weakness, which is the title of our sermon. This is a mirror of our own weakness as we observe Peter um, for one of the last times in the Gospel of Luke in a very unique and specific way. So we want to read through Luke chapter 22, verses 54 through 62. I think I try and imagine that if you're hearing these sermons, if you've been reading through the book of Luke for the first time, and you're not aware of what it is that's coming, you take into consideration all that it is that you've heard from Peter and seen from Peter, this scene from Peter is completely out of place. This is not the Peter that we have seen and known from Luke's gospel. You know, the Peter that, well, we'll get into it, but um, it's unique in how it portrays him, and it's, and it's instructive, and it's good for us. So Luke twenty-two fifty-four through 62. And they seized him, him being Jesus, and, they, and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man was also with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I don't know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour still, another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. I mean, verse 61, that is, that's the heartbreaker. I read that passage, um, and I think of the look that Christ gives him. And Peter's response to that, it's, it's humbling, it's relatable, it's sobering. The backdrop for this text, of course, is what it is that we have seen earlier in chapter 22, verses 31 through 34. Peter tells them, the 11, they're in the upper room together having the Passover before they go out into the garden. And he tells them that Satan has desired to sift all of you, 11 of you. But Peter, I have prayed for you specifically. Um, and that after you have fallen, that your faith may not fail, he says. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and de death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And so this text that we read today is the fulfilling of, of what it is that Peter, if Jesus told 
Peter what was going to happen. Jesus tells Peter that Satan has demanded to sift them all. Jesus has prayed for Peter that his faith may not fail, that he might not apostatize. It's not the same as falling, for we see Peter's falling in our text today. But he's prayed for him that his faith may not fail. And after he falls, he is to return and strengthen the brothers and that it will end up working for their good. And that's the hope for the believer. Like, if you have, if you have failed, if you have fallen, succumb to the temptation of sin for, you know, for a moment or for a prolonged period of time. God is not, and if you're still alive... <laughs> God is not done with you. You think about Peter and his failure and, and his bitter weeping. This is not something that he takes lightly. One of the things that I think about from this text is that even though he knew it was coming, it doesn't change his response. Just because he knows he's going, just because Jesus tells him you're going to fall. When he falls, he doesn't go, oh, well, Jesus said it was going to happen. So, and it happened. So, yeah, that's kind of a bummer. No big deal. I'll go on my way. Like he's still broken. He's still completely undone. His heart is pierced by what he's done. And it causes him to weep tears of bitterness of what it is that he has done, denying his Lord. But the, the promise is that after he has fallen, he will return. And when he returns, his, his job is to strengthen his brother. It's going to work out for Peter's good. It's going to work out for the good of his brothers and his, the, the apostles. It's going to end up working out for the good of the church. It worked out for my good this week as I read through this and studied through this and wrestled with my own failures and fallings and, wrestling and succumbing to sin and temptation at various points in my life. And the good news of the gospel that God then brings in as he restores and strengthens me and hopefully does for you as well. And this is the hope of the believer that um, God has not done and he still uses those who have fallen and those who have failed for his glorious purposes. And he's, I mean, he's the, he's the, divine God who works all things together for our good and for those who are called according to his purpose, for those that love him. He's the only one that can do this, who can take our sinfulness and turn and bring good out of it, all part of his divine and sovereign plan for his kingdom. And Peter, even though he knows, like I said, that the certainty of it is to come, it doesn't remove the sting when it does. And we see Peter's bitter lament, his lamentation over his sin when he denies even knowing the Lord that we get into. We see how the situation unfolds. They seize him. They seize Jesus. Mankind lays their hands on God and, and bring him, brings him into uh, the courtroom, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And they'd kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together. Peter sat down among them. Now, the other gospel writers add other details, and I'm not going to get into all those details. I just want to focus on Luke's account today for our purposes. It's interesting, though, that Luke is the only one that puts Peter's denial before the trial of Jesus. So in verses 63 through 71, it's the trial of Jesus in Luke. 
All the other gospel writers flip it the other way. And Luke is doing something where he's emphasizing Peter's role because he has emphasized Peter in a unique way and in his gospel as a whole, which we'll see. But Peter's following at a distance, comes into the middle of the courtyard, and he sits down among those who are the betrayers, the crowd that was just in the garden, opposed to the Lord, opposed to him. He's now sitting down among them in that very same courtyard. And a servant girl, she sees him as he sat in the light, and she's looking closely. She's inspecting him, and she's going, and she comes to the conclusion and says, this man also was with him. And Peter denies it, saying, woman, I don't know him. And his, his response is one of premeditation, and it's also one of um, rebuke to the girl as well. It's as if Peter has already made up his mind that um, he's going to deny any association with the Lord. And even his response is of a rebuke of, of the servant girl, you don't know what you're talking about. And when we see it continue to go on, the, the accusation, the identification of him, of Peter, intensifies, and his responses intensify as well. First, it's just a servant girl looking closely, saying this man was with him, but he says, woman, I don't even, I don't know him. But then a little later, someone else saw him and said, oh, you also are one of them. You're a disciple. You're, you weren't just with him. You're one of them. You're a disciple. And this intensifies who it is that he's being identified as. And his response is, man, I am not. I'm not a disciple. I'm not a follower. Not only do I not know him, I am not one of his disciples. Now this, this cuts to the heart for every believer because if, if, if you were a believer and you, and you love the Lord Jesus Christ imperfectly, of course, all of us do imperfectly, but, you're, but your identification is that you're a core part of who you are as a being is that you are a, one of his disciples. And you, and you fundamentally deny that for the believer, that's to, to say that I, it's to deny who I am at my core. And this is what Peter does. You're one of them. I'm not one of them. I'm not a disciple. And then verse 59, after an interval of about an hour. So Peter's still sitting there. About an hour goes by. And another insisted this time, they're insisting, certainly, and it literally it means in truth, in truth, this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. He is essentially calling Peter a liar. You're lying. You were with him. You know him. You were one of them. And Peter's response, man, I do not know what you're talking about. I don't even, I don't even know anything about the situation that's going on. He denies all knowledge, all culpability whatsoever. I'm just a normal guy sitting around, you know, in this crowd in the courtyard with the rest of you guys. I don't know what's going on. I mean, complete denial of being with him in the garden, denial of being his disciple, and then denial of even having any ideas, any clue as to what it is that's happening. He's removing himself as far as he can, as completely as he can, from any association with Jesus Christ. 
And what's incredible is in verse 61. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. I wish I knew what the setting looked like. I wish I could be there. Peter's in a courtyard and Jesus is probably brought inside into the interior of this building of this the high priest's house which was probably like a palace and peter's in the courtyard with the rest of the the crowd around a campfire jesus is somewhere else removed and like i want to know does he look through a window does he like peer around something you know well whatever it is obviously because jesus is god he sees peter he always sees peter he always sees all of us but and Luke is the only one that records this happening. Wherever he is, he looks, makes eye contact with Peter, and Peter is immediately, he's undone. He's broken. He knows what it is that he has done by the look upon Jesus' face. And he goes out and he's, he weeps bitterly. He is, he is, he is broken. He's lamenting his sin. This is the heart of the believer. The heart of the believer, when your sin is exposed to you, you don't justify it. You don't try and reason it away. You don't try and explain it away. You don't give excuses for it. You lament over your sin. You weep over your sin. The Lord looks at Peter. Last time the word Lord was used in Luke's gospel was earlier in verse 49 when the disciples said, when they were still in the garden, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And before the words can even come out of their mouth, Peter is the one who's swinging. The sword is already going through the air. The last time Peter referred to Jesus as Lord was earlier in verse 33 of chapter 22 when he said, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. He has he has proclaimed his undying faithfulness and allegiance to Christ. If I got to go to jail because you're going to jail, let's do it. If they put you to death, man, they can put me to death as well. And the next time that we and we see in our text here today, that same Lord looks at Peter and his denial and his his failure, and Peter's broken and he's undone by it. I wonder about that look and what it was a look of. And I imagine it to be a look of both judgment and grace because that embodies really Jesus' ministry and who he is. He's come to judge unfaithfulness, failure, sin. But then for those of us who know him, the look doesn't end in judgment, in the guilt, in the exposing of our sin, but it also incorporates a look of grace where we see the look of forgiveness. We see the look of mercy. We see the look of compassion. The, the, the look of compassion and grace upon the face of Christ does not look as sweet if you don't receive the look of sin, of judgment, and dis, uh, disappointment upon your sin. That's what makes 
the look of mercy and kindness and goodness so sweet to the believer. Peter sees this look, and I imagine he sees the look of judgment because of his sin, but then he sees the look of grace as well, and he's, he's undone, he's broken. Because he knows who Jesus is, and he knows him to be the righteous judge, but he also knows him to be the Savior. I mean, he would proclaim that earlier on in his ministry. Whatever the look is, I love the way that J.C. Ryle puts it in his commentary. In this look, Peter heard a sermon he would never forget. And that look impacted him and changed him. What makes this scene all the more unique is that, you know, in Luke's gospel, Peter's name is used 19 times. Six of those times is within this text alone. Almost a third of the times that Peter is mentioned in the gospel of Luke is mentioned within our passage today. Six of them. Six of the 19. What's unique about that is that Peter's the only one there, so there's really no need to continue to repeat his name as, as much as they do. You're not, gonna, you're not going to um, confuse Peter, the disciple, with another disciple there. There are no other disciples there. It's only him. And so, Peter say, so Luke is saying, it's this Peter. It's this Peter that denied once. It's this Peter that denied twice. It's this Peter that denied the third time. It's the Peter that was following at a distance. It's the Peter that laments his sin. It's the Peter that is broken. It's the same Peter that we've seen throughout the Gospel of Luke. It's the same Peter that at the first time that he has a conversation with Jesus in chapter 5, verse 8, one of the first words out of his mouth to the Lord Jesus are, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. It's that same Peter that when it, in his first interaction with the Lord Jesus Christ saw his own sin and because of it asked Jesus to, get, to, to leave his presence. And it reminds me that no matter how, you know, this is approximately three years later from that pronouncement, that confession of Jesus. And no matter how much he has grown and no matter how much time he has spent with the Lord and no matter how much he has changed, Sinfulness is still fundamentally a part of who he is. And that's the same for us as well. No matter how long you've been walking with the Lord, no matter how much doctrine you know, no matter how much you've changed, and praise the God for change and sanctification that comes about in our lives, but sin, our sin nature is still fundamentally a part of who we are. And that, and that emphasizes the importance of living with humility, thankfulness, and sobriety before the face of our God until he completes the work that he has began within each one of us. If any of us think that, oh man, I would never do what Peter did, you're wrong. Any of us are capable of doing this and much worse. And when you're aware of your own sinfulness and the sin that lives within you, you're, you're quick to live a life of gratitude to him, worship to him, but of sobriety and, and humility before him as well, which we'll consider here in just a few moments. The Peter that asked Jesus to depart from him for he is a sinful man is the same Peter that can, the first one, Chapter 9, verse 20, is the same Peter that confesses Jesus Christ as Lord. Who do you say that I am? 
You're the Son of God. You're the Lord Jesus Christ. It's that same Peter. It's the same Peter that was one of the three on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's the same Peter that was one of the two that prepared the Passover meal. It's the same Peter that declares he's ready to go to prison and even death for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same Peter who grabs the sword with intent to harm others in order to defend his Lord Jesus Christ. Is this same Peter who is now denying all knowledge and association with his Lord. It's, a, it's an incredible turn of events, and it's instructive for us. It's helpful for us. I'm reminded of, of two things, which I've mentioned already. The importance of humility and sober thinking as believers, but also it emphasizes the steadfastness of Christ. You think that Jesus is on trial and he's about to be handed over. He knows what awaits him. He knows the cross is what awaits him, his crucifixion. And yet he's mindful of Peter. And where Peter fails, Christ, Christ succeeds in his mission. He never veers away. He is constant. It says we read in chapter 9, verse 51, when he decided he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He was committed to, what it, to the cross that he knew awaited him there. The agonies and the suffering that he knew awaited him in Jerusalem, he set his face to, he was committed to, he was determined. That is just not like Peter. That is not like us. And that's why it's good. That's why the gospel is good news. Because our salvation is not based upon our faithfulness and our goodness. It's based upon his faithfulness and his goodness. People like us who fail, who fall into sin, are given, accredited, the perfection, the righteousness of Christ given to us and imputed to us on our behalf. And, and that imputation of that righteousness doesn't even automatically just make us righteous and, and perfect people in our character and our conduct. Like, we still struggle. And that continues to remind me of the good news of the gospel that he has declared something to be true for me that I know is not true. He declares me to be righteous, and I know that in my character and in my being and in my sinfulness, I am not. But because of his commitment and his devotion to the cross and to his ministry and his perfect life lived, in his declaration that it is true, it is true. God looks at it and considers it true. And that brings about for me what I think and I hope it brings about for you, which is what it brought about for Peter, which is what it is that we've seen bring about for others, is that when we do fall into sin and temptation, we do fall, we do fail, we're heartbroken. How could, I, how could I sin against one who has been so good, who has loved me so well and so perfectly, who calls me something, calls me a son, an adopted son, when I don't, I don't act like a son all the time? I don't give to him the worship and the devotion that he deserves. I fail. And yet he looks at me with the perfection of Christ as if I haven't. It's, it's, it's an incredibly wonderful gift the salvation that we have in Christ 
Peter knows of it. David knew of it as well. You read Psalm 51 and his account of that. Psalm 38 is another account of that. But I think of Psalm chapter 6 and the way that David described his own sin. He said in verse 1 of Psalm 6, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. He opens up with culpability of guilt. And then he describes his condition in Psalm chapter 6, verse 6. I am weary with groaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. This is the, these are the words of someone who's broken and laments their sin. Doesn't take it lightly, oh, because I've been, yeah, I've been forgiven of my sins, past, present, and future, and so I've sinned again today. Well, I know I'm forgiven. I've got this, you know, this eternal security that God's given to me. Of course, we believe that those who have been called, he justified, and it leads to ultimate glorification. He will lose none of those that are his. But that doesn't mean that when those who are his sin, we take sin lightly and we just brush it off as if it's no big deal because Christ paid for it. Like when you sin, you should be broken and lament over your sinfulness. And I understand that there, that there tend to be varying degrees of that in some way. But every sin is, as R.C. Sproul would put it, cosmic treason. Everything is an offense against his holy, perfect, good character. And we shouldn't take any of it lightly. And so, Peter, I mean, excuse me, David would say in Psalm 51, 17, as, as he's going through the own process of his sinfulness, his wicked decisions, offenses against the Lord, and he comes to the conclusion, well, what is it, you know, that I can do? What is it that will please God? And what we have inspired in Scripture for us is that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. I mean, if, if, you're, if you're guilty and you're weighed down by the burden of your sin and you're wondering what is it that would please the Lord, brokenness and contrition of heart is what the Scripture tells us. And if you're there and you're broken and you're contrite over your sin, well then be encouraged that you are already on the road to doing what it is that the Lord wants you to do and how he would, and, and what is pleasing to him and his sight. And I know there's still more work to do, but at least you're on the path. You're trending the right direction. And this is the, emphasizes the good news of the gospel of who Christ is for us. The scripture gives us, I think, a good encouragement from Peter's own mouth later on as he would write the book of First Peter, how a believer is supposed to live if we're, if we're aware of the potential for us to live this way, to, to, to fall into sin, to give in a sin and temptation, which James 1, by the way, reminds us, springs up from within our own desires. Let no one, when he is being tempted, say that they're being tempted by God. For you are lured and enticed by your own desires, James 1.13. But I wonder, as Peter would exhort his church and exhorts us today, this morning, if his own failure, if his own falling into sin is upon his mind, as of course he's being divinely inspired by the Lord to write, 1 Peter chapter 5, of course, 1 Peter, the whole book, but 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, 
Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I wonder at all if Peter is thinking back as he's writing this in 1 Peter 5, 8. Resist him. Be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. If he's thinking back upon this moment in, in Luke 22 of the time where he denied even like knowing the Lord Jesus Christ at all. And as he thinks about that, he's recalling, be watchful. I know what it's like to not be watchful. I know what it's like to not be sober-minded. I know what it's like to be consumed by the enemy, to give in to sin and temptation. He is prowling around like a roaring lion. And, and his words are, he is seeking someone to devour. His in, the, the intent of the enemy is to consume you, that you would no longer be. And we take these things lightly. We look, at, we look at Satan like he's like one of these little kittens. Rather than the true adversary and the true foe that he really is. I don't know if you know this, but he's stronger than you. He's smarter than you. He's craftier than you, than all of us. And he knows how to tempt us. And so the call from Scripture is to be sober-minded and to be watchful and be aware of his ways so that we don't give in to it. Paul would write and emphasize the importance that Scripture plays in our lives in this. I was thinking about 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. And Paul uses the example of the Israelites as they wandered around in the desert for 40 years because of their unbelief, because they're grumbling and complaining against what God had done, his good and gracious provision of rescuing them and delivering, out of the, delivering them out of Egypt. But they couldn't go into the, the promised land because it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And then listen to what he says. Now, these things took place as, an, as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of, the, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality of some of, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He says, as you, as you are mindful of what it is that took place in the past, those things happened and were written down for our instruction so that we might not be like them and make the same mistakes that they made. Peter's 
failure and his falling took place and was written down, recorded in scripture for all of all, all time, for our instruction. That we might not that we might learn. I might not do what he did. And if we do what he did, we may respond the way that he responded with bitter lamentation and weeping over our sin and not take it lightly. But Scripture also tells us and reminds us of our failures and falling, but also the the strength and the success of a Christ in our place. Hebrews 4, 14, 15, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus. The Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence enter near the throne to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I mean, that's good news. That we have a faithful, a sympathetic and faithful high priest. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And when we fall, when we fail, he says, the doors to my throne room, my throne of grace are open wide. For you to come and to find help in your time of need. And so for the believer, the, the great privilege is to be able to go to him in our time of need and find him good and faithful to help us. Is that how we look upon him? Is that how we see him? The, the, the temptation for the believer, and this is leading into our time of communion, the temptation for the believer is to be completely aware of the ways in which you failed, in which you've fallen. I imagine that perhaps instances of that in the past have come to your mind. And the guilt and the shame of doing those things, especially the things that hurt the people that we love the most, is enough to flood you with guilt and shame being overwhelmed and undone by what it is that the sin that you've partaken of. The other part of that, what we see in Scripture, is that that's been covered by the blood of Christ. There's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can you imagine that? Isn't that incredible? I mean, like, if you know, if you're at all aware of who you are and what you're capable of and what you have done in the past. And then to know that he says that there is no condemnation for you. You are undone. There is no option but worship. There's nowhere to go other than worship because of how good he has been to you. You stand there declared clean, pardoned, righteous in his sight, not because you were good enough, but because he was good on your behalf. That's the good news of the gospel. That's why we partake of communion every single week, because we need the reminder of who he is. And God sending his beloved son to die a horrific death for rebels that he has adopted and pardoned and brought into his family. And he, and he knows how quick we are to forget it. And he knows how quick we are to go back to 
the gutter into the pit. And so he gives us elements. He's like, eat this bread and drink this juice as physical reminders because you need to engage all of who you are, all of your senses into what it is that I've done for you and the forgiveness that we rest in in the work of Christ. And so as we go to the communion now, we remember who we are. We remember who he is. This is a time of confession. Every week, right, we're reminded of these things. Confession, examination, and assurance for those of us who are in Christ. And we worship at this table, at this meal, together right now. And so if you're a believer in Christ, we invite for you to partake. And if you aren't a believer, to consider what it is that we've said in your sinfulness and his loving kindness to pay your debt and the, hear the invitation to come to him with humility and sobriety and to receive the gift of salvation that he offers. The elements are on the, the table behind you. I invite you, for you to, to get them and you can return back to your seat. Have some time of prayer and we'll partake of the elements together here shortly.